being a thought leader isn't the goal, it's the result. So every thought leader, quote unquote, started as a nobody that nobody had heard of, that didn't have an audience. And that stuff comes with your willingness to show up first and put more into the community than you're asking to take out. So make all the deposits upfront, share the knowledge, be generous, be effusive with how much you're willing to put in and the results come, but it has to go in that order. Do you want to be a leader who gets noticed, gets things done and gets real results? Then you need influence and authority. Join host Jennifer McClure to learn how to build authority, expand your influence and increase your impact. This is the Impact Makers podcast with Jennifer McClure. Hey there, Impact Makers. Thank you for joining me for episode number 50 of the Impact Makers podcast. If you're a regular listener of the podcast, you've heard me talk with some previous guests that I first connected with back in the somewhat golden days of blogging and the beginnings of social networks like LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. You know, it's hard for me to imagine that 2008, 9, and 10 were so long ago, but the world just keeps spinning and that time gets further and further in my rearview mirror. Although I'm not sure how I originally connected with today's guest, I know that I was a regular reader of her very popular blog called Brass Tech Thinking during that time. Through great writing and a relatable voice, she shared her experiences, practical advice, and marketing expertise that was extremely helpful to me and thousands of others in building a personal brand and in building a business that connected with those that I wanted to serve. Then, one day in January 2010, she wrote a blog post that was titled, The Equestrian's Guide to Reaching Your Goals, and as a fellow adult amateur equestrian, I loved how she linked lessons she'd learned from horseback riding to setting foundational goals for the next year. That was it. We were destined to be best of friends, or at least virtual horse buddies online. To this day, we love sharing and commenting and liking pictures of our horsey adventures, and I hope we'll actually get to meet at a horse show or an industry conference or event sometime in the future. But since that doesn't look like it will happen anytime soon, I thought that asking her to join me on the podcast would be fun, but also really valuable for both you and me. She's still doing great work and continues to share her thoughts and ideas freely to help others however she can. Amber Naslin is a 20-year veteran marketer, and in that time, she's worked with some of the biggest companies, the freshest startups, and everything in between. In her current role as senior consultant at LinkedIn, she advises top global clients on their digital content marketing strategies and their overall approach to using LinkedIn. And she's on a mission to prove that companies can build compelling, authoritative B2B brands without being dull. Amber is also the co-author of the best-selling social media handbook, The Now Revolution. And when she's not working on her next book, article, or industry talk, she's restoring her brain cells on horseback or spending time with her kid, who, by the way, is also an accomplished equestrian, and her rescue dogs. In today's episode, Amber and I chat about what it was like for her to go from industry darling to best-selling author to failed entrepreneur, and what she's learned and discovered about herself on her journey back to rebuilding her confidence that has fueled her success today. We also talk about what it takes to build a strong and authentic personal brand and platform in today's noisy world, as well as what to consider when balancing a strong personal brand with a high-profile corporate career. Even though we've not yet met in person, talking with Amber was like having a conversation with a longtime friend, and I think that you'll be able to capture several great takeaways from our chat today. 
Well, hello, Amber Naslin. I am so excited to finally get to chat with you. I've been a longtime follower, first time getting to see you sort of in person online. And I look forward to kind of chatting with you and learning more about your work and what you do and sharing with my community today. Yeah, thank you so much. I'm so glad we finally got a chance to connect. I feel like it's been a hundred years that we've known each other online and horse stuff, but yeah. we've never gotten to connect before now. It's interesting. I And I've looked it up before. I know I was working in the recruiting firm, so that would have had to have been 2006, 2009 timeframe. And I read a post of yours. I was subscribed to your blog. I'd come across with you somewhere along the way where you wrote about horseback riding. Yeah, uh, and what it, I think of what it had taught you, and there was a picture of you on a gray horse jumping a jump, and so I have been like a longtime fan since then for sure. But I remember it's like that OG post. content, man. I even remember that post now that you bring it up, and I was like, oh my gosh, I totally did write that post a hundred years yeah, ago, and I was <laughs> like, this is my girl. So, yeah, yeah. so <laughs> you got girl. added into all the uh, people that I actually pay attention to. <laughs> I love it. It's like the, there's the broad universe and then there's the people I actually pay attention to. I have that same thing. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about your journey, where you are today, what brought you here and start wherever you want. Oh my gosh. Well, I have a kind of a weird and meandering background because I'm, I'm an accidental marketer, as I jokingly say all the time, as a lot of people are in my space. And I came by way of music school. <laughs> so oh. I did not study marketing formally. I was a music performance major. And I worked in nonprofits for a lot of years, raising money. And then somebody recruited me to the dark side of corporate marketing. And I've kind of been doing that ever since. And I've been really focused on the tech industry for the last 15 years. So I kind of work in and on and around the internet, which is a little bit, it's a double-edged sword, right? It's good and it's bad because I can't always break away from it. But it's uh, it's connected me to a lot of really great people, including including you. So it's like, I, I right now I my day job is I work at LinkedIn, and my job there is that I kind of take most of my marketing knowledge and background and expertise, and I use that to consult with our enterprise clients to kind of advise them on their content and marketing strategy, mm-hmm. and specifically how to activate that strategy on our platform. So I'm kind of a consultant within the LinkedIn organization specific to our clients. And it's a great gig. I love it. Uh, LinkedIn's culture is phenomenal. My job is fun. I get to travel. I get to see, well, normally I get to travel. I get to meet with a lot of companies and see a lot of what's actually happening out in the world of marketing. So I like kind of being in the trenches that way. Yeah. And yeah, in the middle, like aside from that, I try really hard to pretend I'm a writer some other days. Yeah. So that's me in a nutshell, I guess. Yeah. So I think I started following you where you come, was the company name called Radian 6 or? Radian 6. Yeah. That was yeah. Old, like old school. That, that was a startup company that I was doing social media and community management work for back and it started in like 2008 or so. And I was there all the way through their acquisition by salesforce.com in 2011, um, which was a fun experience and quite a ride. But yeah, that that was a long time ago. That feels like for a lifetime ago in some ways. Yeah, but you have long been a prolific speaker. So you also speak on conference stages or around the world as well, typically about marketing and some other topics. What is it? I know you you took a stint working for yourself there for a little while. You wrote a best-selling book. When you look back on the period of time that's brought you to where you are today, what are a couple of things that really stand out that have made you into who you are today? Boy, that's a big question. I think it, 
honestly, there's a couple of like, definitely writing and publishing a book was a big one because as a kid who sort of always fancied herself wanting to be a writer, publishing a book was high on my bucket list. And it's not nearly as glamorous as you think it is or as it comes across to be. So it was a heck of, a, of an experience in a lot of ways. The second was, I, I, so after Radiant 6 and the Salesforce acquisition, I took some of the earnings from that and came and started my own company. And I think the hardest part of that was I spent three years building it and then it failed spectacularly. So it was like, it was a consultancy that did not do as well as I wanted it to. And we struggled mightily. And I I spent a lot of blood, sweat, tears, and money to make that fly. And when it didn't, man, that just like, it took the wind out of my sails. It, It killed my confidence. It hurt me at a personal level. I mean, it was, as with most things like that, when when you have a high personal failure, I had a business partner, you know, that relationship fell out. I had a lot of other personal relationships involved with that that fell out in the wake of it. So it was like, that was one of those seminal life and professional moments where it's like, you, you really learn what you're made of when you have to kind of put your life and your finances and your relationships all back together. Mm-hmm. You know, like that. So I think in the years following that, it really... I was silver lining in that cloud is that I learned a lot about what I want and what I don't want out of my professional life and career, mm-hmm. what kind of things I'm willing and able to prioritize, what matters to me. So I, you know, trial by fire, <laughs> I guess. But for the most part, I would change it if only because it was really painful, but I wouldn't change the lessons I took away from that because they've been very valuable. Mm-hmm. Well, I've, I've read some of your writings on that. So a lot of people who maybe haven't yet started their own business think that's the ultimate to start their own business, to be their own boss. And oh, I think yeah. you've shared that um, it's not all it's cracked up to be sometimes, right? No, I mean, it's we we very much glamorize entrepreneurial ventures, especially for those of us who work in the technology and like online world, like the startup culture has kind of its own mythos. And there's that aura of got to hustle, got to do more. Don't work for the man. If you're ever going to, you know, make it in the world, you got to go to do your own thing. And like, I'm proud of myself for taking the risk and, and trying it. But I got to say, like, entrepreneurship is not for everyone. And there was a lot of aspects of it that I hated. And I'm not sure entirely that I would do again. I mean, if the right opportunity presented itself, you know, and it was something I just couldn't turn away from, from a passion perspective, maybe, but just like being a business owner for the sake of being a business owner, it is hard. It is scary. As you well know, you know, it's like, it's hard. It's scary. It's fraught with risk. It's a roller coaster of uncertainty and and ambiguity at times. And it's just like, you got to have nerves of steel to do that. And I don't know that it actually suits my strengths and skill set all the time. So I had a little bit of a moment where I was feeling like a, a failure is probably a strong word, but feeling a little bit like I was selling out or giving up by going back to work for the man, you know? And, but the truth is I, I bring a lot of value to the organizations that I work with. And I have a particular set of strengths that I think lends me well to taking other people's businesses and ideas and improving on them. So it's like, why would I not 
lean into that somewhat. So I don't know, like the whole, you have to go be an entrepreneur and it's so glamorous and sexy and it's the quick path to get rich and have independence in your life. It's like, man, it's just not how it works. <laughs> it's just not how it works. And I wish it were that easy, but it is far from. So you had quite a personal brand before writing the book and starting your own business and were one of the leading voices and and still are, still am one of the leading, whatever. <laughs> you still are one of the leading voices. What has that journey been like kind of being out front as a woman in the primarily, as you said, the tech industry and putting yourself out there, putting your thoughts out there? Do you, do you think that also has been a fully positive journey? <laughs> Uh, fully positive. No, um, <laughs> no, definitely not I, there. So I, again, like that was not something I ever really intended to set out to do when I started blogging back in God, 2003 or something. I mean, it, I never had intentions or like delusions of grandeur that it was going to lead anywhere. It was just a place for me to like write thoughts online. And as I got more entrenched in the industry, the, the, any kind of notoriety or popularity I had was completely by accident. It wasn't engineered. It wasn't something I tried to do. And I'm fortunate. It brought me all sorts of like things I should be very grateful for. I mean, my book deal literally spawned from my blog, you know, it's like all the time I spent online and like stumbling on Twitter and accidentally becoming, I, that was just, that was good timing. Like I showed up early and I was really chatty and mouthy like I usually am. And so it wasn't something I set out to do and it actually still carries a fair bit of discomfort for me to be in that kind of position because I have opinions and I, and I have, I enjoy the community aspect of it, but I don't like the scrutiny. And especially as a woman in technology, there are plenty of times where I've had a virtual target on my back. You know, I've had my fair share of trolls. I've had stalkers. I've had, People post really nasty, unkind things about me online, everything from my weight to my intelligence to my work quality to like, I, it's just, so it's a little bit brutal kind of to be out there in the world and have people perpetually picking apart your work. I mean, keyboards make for courageous people. And I'm just like, come on, say that to my face, yo. Mm -hmm. But like, yo, so that's very difficult. But like, you know, back when the business fell apart, I also lost a lot of my mojo for like being online and being part of that community. And I didn't really want to create content. And it's funny how fickle that world is too, because like the minute you kind of disappear for a little while, you know, I didn't, I wasn't on the lists anymore and pe the phone wasn't ringing off the hook for people to have me come and do big keynote speeches the same way. And you start to realize that the veneer of all of that is just that, it, you know, it's like, what really matters is not what happens with a few strokes of the keyboard. So it really, in one way, like some of the harder parts of it have really been a forcing function to put that in perspective for me and make sure that the way that I approach being online and being a voice, quote unquote, is I take it a little bit with a grain of salt because I know that it is only worth as much as somebody's kind of passing attention span. And it's not that I don't value that because I wouldn't keep doing it if I didn't. And it has made some extraordinarily valuable connections. I mean, some of the most important people in my life, you know, I met on the internet, mm -hmm. but I just always, it helps me keep in perspective that like if the whole thing came crashing down tomorrow and 
Facebook and Twitter and LinkedIn all disappeared, I, I would be okay. Yeah. Because I've got other things that absorb my time and energy too. Well, what advice do you give? I know, as I said, we kind of were starting around the same time. And a lot of times people will look at whether it's my Twitter following the number of people or, you know, whatever showing up on lists or whatever. And they're like, oh, how do I do that? And and my answer is often get there early. You know, yeah. as you said, you know, to get on Twitter when there were a million people on Twitter mm-hmm. and to be talking to people about what they had for lunch and, you know, yep. writing things like going to the post office and that'd be your tweet, you know. <laughs> it wasn't yeah. what it's turned into today, but yet because it was more communal, we built, as you said, I, I have my best friends today are people that I met on the internet, particularly mm-hmm. through Twitter and blogging. And that's different today. So if someone comes to you, I mean, they may be a young professional or maybe a mid-career or late-stage career professional who's saying, I want to either step out on my own or build my brand. What advice do you give to them? Because they look at your your brand or your following, they're like, well, then I must be on Twitter. I must have a blog and I must do this. And that may not be what they need to do today. No, it's it's a different world now than you know when you and I were coming up as young pups on the internet. <laughs> it, it is it is different, and it, there is definitely a more I don't know what the right word is. There's sort of like a, a game behind a lot of this that wasn't there. I don't think when this was new to people because we were all just like 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 you said, saying the same dumb things on Twitter, and I just happened to say a lot of dumb things over a long period of time, and I think it was consistency helped. And one of the things I do say to people, like if you really want to still build platform online today, the one common denominator is that you have to keep showing up, mm-hmm. you know, but if, if, if nothing else, my brief respite away from a lot of this goes to show you that consistent presence counts for a lot. So if you're going to be there, you kind of got to be there you know, that doesn't mean you have to be everywhere. I, I definitely, I totally disavow the idea that you have to be like on Twitter and TikTok and Facebook and Instagram and blogging and LinkedIn. And you don't have to do all that. Mm-hmm. Pick one or two things that actually you enjoy and that you'll stick with because that sort of consistency over time is really what separates the people who, who successfully build platform and the ones who are just trying to game or growth hack, God, I hate that term so much, but like growth hack the, the system, because, you know, a lot of people are like, how do I build a following? And like, you don't really, what you do is you build a point of view, you build a passion around a particular topic, you build the willingness to share what you know with other people. And the following is the result. It's mm-hmm. not the goal. So, but it's hard for people to get their head around it because the numbers, we put them on there. So people think that that's what matters. But even to this day, I would tell you, I would rather have 200 people who are so into the thing that we're doing together and are passionate about that than 200,000 people who don't care. And, you know, even to this day, I I don't know, I've got 60, what, 7,000 followers on Twitter. I probably interact with the same three dozen people. Yeah. all the time. So it's like the numbers don't mean anything. They re- at the end of the day, they really don't. That's not the thing to chase. And if, if that's what you're chasing, that's all you'll end up with at the end. So I have always focused on the content, the ideas, the people behind those ideas, and the rest seems to follow. So I just, 
It's like, man, if you want to do something online, you should be caring about what you are putting into the community, mm-hmm. not necessarily the size of the community that you're building. Yeah. I think, you know, the idea of kind of thought leadership is, you know, where we are now. And some people love to hate on that term as well. You have, as you said, a lot of opinions. I've always had a lot of opinions. <laughs> yes, that. And you share them. And, and sometimes I, I've, you know, I remember LinkedIn to be a relatively conservative company. And I'm glad that, you know, they don't seem to censor your voice. Is it something that even you work with a lot of, I'm sure, very conservative companies and brands through your your job with working with content strategy and, and what you've done over the years? And then again, following your own path. How important is it, do you think, to kind of really have that strong opinion that may repel some people? Tell, tell me your thoughts on that or what you advise your clients. Or is it different for a personal brand versus a corporate brand? It's definitely different. It's definitely different. I think we have leeway as individual personal brands, if you will, that maybe a brand uh, in a corporate sense, we're not subject to even like the same regulations and the same kinds of legal implications. And so those are, they're very different worlds and it's very important to understand the perspective that you're coming from, from, from either of those things. But having, especially as a personal brand, having a personality is polarizing. You know, there are plenty of people in the world who find my personality to be magnetic. And there are plenty of people who find it incredibly off-putting and I'm no different, but those people are, and that's okay. I mean, it's like the old adage in branding. If you're, if you're trying to be for everybody, you're not going to be for anyone. Mm -hmm. So I do believe that there is a really important aspect of showing up, you know, you hear the word authenticity tossed around a lot. And I laugh at that one because you can authentically be a complete jerk. I won't swear, but <laughs> you can authentically be a complete jerk. So I, I look at that more about being genuine and, and showing up truly as kind of who you are. But I, even I, with all of my various and sundry opinions and strong personality, I still edit because I don't, my, my personal philosophy is that I don't want to alienate people outright. I don't want to be, I'm not choosing to be cruel. I'm not choosing to be unkind to people. In fact, I have a lot of opinions, but you'll rarely hear me criticize or critique other people's work because I feel like it's already so difficult to have the courage to put your own work out there. And I know what it feels like to have somebody kind of, you know, drive by, tear it down because they're having a moment on the internet. So I just choose, like I have opinions about the world and myself and thoughts about a lot of things, but I, you'll rarely hear me like point at somebody else's stuff and tell you what I think better for, for better or for worse. From a corporate standpoint, you have to be, you are a steward of so many things. You're a steward of your employees. You're a steward of your customers. You're a steward of the legacy of the brand of the company. So all of those things have to figure into how you show up as a brand And there is cause for being thoughtful about that. And it's not so much a matter of conservative as it is a spectrum of tolerance and risks you're willing to take because personal or corporate brand, there are risks to putting yourself out there. And there's nothing that is risk-free. Being on the internet itself is is a risk. (laughs) So you just have to decide like, in the scenario planning in your head, if this goes badly, how is it going to go badly? And am I prepared for that? And am I ready to deal with the fallout? 
for me as an individual, I get, you know, somebody gets mad and pops off and calls me a name. I can hit the block button and move on with my life. As a corporate entity, could you lose a customer? Could you get sued? Could you get in trouble with some regulatory authority in your industry? Like there's a whole bunch of other things to think about. Mm -hmm. So I just, I guess my guidance is that everybody has to decide for themselves what thoughtful looks like. But I think as much as possible, making sure that there is some kind of humanity and personality and life breathed into that is very important. And personally, the way that I choose to show up as an individual, I, I feel very strongly that part of my role in the universe is to show up and take some risks that other people aren't as comfortable with to show them that it's okay. I talk about things that other people are uncomfortable talking about, mostly because I felt very alone in some of the experiences I went through and I want other people to see that they're not alone and it's okay to talk about some of this stuff, mental health or imposter syndrome or failures of business. Like I'm okay talking about that stuff. And if I need to take the arrows on the front lines so that other people can feel a little more comfortable being open about those things, I think that's a win, but that's a personal choice that I've made and everybody's kind of got to make their own. Sure. Well, do you think talking about I mean, obviously you're, you're brave and I'm, I will say that to talk about mental health and imposter syndrome with the kind of position that you have and the, the visibility that you have that again, maybe a lot of people would click through the link on your profile and go, wow, this person is, you know, a senior leader at a major company and she's talking openly about mental health and imposter syndrome. How important is it to you to to have that voice and has it harmed you in any way, your career or with people in your business or personal life? Yeah, it's a great question. It is, well, first of all, like when I joined LinkedIn, I'm at the stage in my career now where it's very important for me to be part of a company whose values align with mine. So when I was in the interview process, when I was talking to people, Uh, when I was researching more about the company, it was important to me to realize that the culture of LinkedIn is one that is empowering, enabling, is very open about similar things. So there's a lot of discussion openly at LinkedIn, in LinkedIn, around LinkedIn. We have an ERG focused on mental health. Like These are topics that I knew philosophically I was aligned with. So that gave me the reassurance that those were things that I could feel comfortable talking about. And quite frankly, in some of my early interviews with my bosses, I was like, y'all see me online. You've read my stuff. Like you, any issues, (laughs) (laughs) you know? So that was actually a very candid part of the interview process. And I asked those questions about how they felt about having individual voices out there that were, you know, we all represent our companies, whether we like it or not, and whether we put disclaimers in our bios or not. And I am conscious of that. And I'm more conscious of that now probably because I work for a company that I like and respect very much. And I want to be a good steward and ambassador for that brand. And I don't want to put them in undue difficult territory. Just last week, I censored myself because I wanted to comment on something that was happening in the industry. And I decided not to because it was only going to serve as a venting vehicle for me. And it might not have been constructive from a professional standpoint. And so I just chose not to do that. So I mean, I walk that line all the time and I have, I won't say I've had any negative consequences. Like I've mostly stayed clear of things that were super hyper controversial, but again, I think that's personal choice and, and trying to also figure out 
and have open communication with your employers and the brands that you represent about what everybody's tolerance level is for that kind of thing. So I think for the most part, I've had more upsides than downsides. I've, I, you know, I have had a couple of, a <laughs> couple of times in my past, I've actually had people write to my boss and be like, you know, ever said a nasty thing on the internet, you know, or an opinion <laughs> that they didn't agree with. And thankfully I have mostly been working with people who've been like, and, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> okay. And have known that that was kind of part of the package they were buying when they hired me. But like I said, I, I, I think I try really hard to walk the line of the, the biggest, like most egregious sin that I think I commit these days online is I can be kind of sweary. <laughs> and occasionally colleagues have known that like, wow, you really did drop an F-bomb in that tree. And I'm like, yeah, I, told, I, I did. Yes, I did. <laughs> I did. <laughs> we know what that word is. So, you know, I, again, I, I, I do, I'm very conscious of it. I, I take a lot of both pride and a sense of responsibility in that role for me online. And I navigate that daily. And sometimes my, my views on that have sort of evolved over time, but I'm conscious of the risks that I undertake in doing that. And I try to be respectful of the, both the place that I've earned in having that voice and the responsibility that gives me because I have a platform. Yeah, I think it's interesting, again, to have followed your journey at, both through your corporate jobs and, and working for yourself. You know, th- three of the prior guests on this podcast my friend, Laurie Rudiman, Tim Sackett, William Tincup, <laughs> all of those are kind of polarizing individuals from their personal brand standpoint, but they all work for themselves. So it's, right. you know, often you can say, well, I'm going to go out and be totally 100% me and I know I'm going to repel some people and I'm going to attract some people. And in my business, that's what I want to do. So it's yeah. interesting to see someone who works for a large company to to be able to kind of navigate that. And mm-hmm. as you said, I think choose a company and be very transparent in the interviewing process, both sides of what's acceptable and what's not. Yeah, it's been a very clear part of conversation. I mean, back when I worked at Radiant 6, you know, the book was coming out while I was there and I had very open discussions with the executive team there about how do you feel about this? Like, do you feel like I'm stealing thunder from, you, you know, you're not worried about me working on my book and not doing enough at work. And they were actually quite the opposite. They were like, no, this is a great mutually beneficial thing. They invested in that process with me. So it was a very symbiotic relationship. And when I worked at Hootsuite, at Sysimos, um, again, at LinkedIn, I think we've all sort of gotten to the point where there was more upside for both of us. If we collaborated about what my personal platform and the intersection of that and my professional responsibilities are, And I'm in constant touch with my team about that. And I'm very aware, like when I go to post something, my boss is going to read that. Am I going to feel cool about that? Like, am I going to feel good about what, what I put out there? And if I can say yes, or I can, I feel like I can defend it from a point of view of, it's a very strong, you know, alignment with my personal values or something I care about. I'm willing to take that risk. And for the most part, I've worked with professionals who trust me and we have mutual respect for one another. And that seems to work okay. Mm-hmm. Well, it seems like, of course, now you work with LinkedIn and your job is content strategy. I know I see regularly posts from you on LinkedIn where, you know, what might have been in the back in the day, more of a blog post where you're sharing mm-hmm. a thought, kind of a thought leadership angle on th- something. Is that something you do intentionally or you're just going through your day and this comes to you and you're like, I'm going to write this down and share it on LinkedIn? Do you have a strategy around that or do you, does it just come because you're a writer and that's who you are? 
It's more the latter, if I'm honest. Like I'm better at dictating other people's strategies. <laughs> but I am creating my own. It's like a shoemaker's kids problem. Um, I'm a very like fly by the seat of my pants writer. I have a couple of anchors that I am around. One is, you know, I have a very strong belief that there's a lot of fluff and BS in marketing. And I like to tackle that and simplify some of what the misconceptions I hear about marketing in my day-to-day work and dismantle that a bit and demystify it and make marketing something that is more approachable for a lot of people, minus the buzzwords and minus some of the jargon and minus some of the hand-wavy misconceptions people have about it. So that's one angle. If that's a strategy, I don't know, but it's kind of my anchor around when I write about professional stuff, that's what motivates me to do it. And then there's the personal side of things where you know, I have, I have other like topics that sort of get stuck in my teeth and I can't seem to let them go. So I write about them. And there's a, one of my favorite prosaic writers is Joan Didion. And she has a very famous quote where she says, I write to discover what I think. And for me, writing is a very exploratory vehicle where it's like, hmm, this topic is sort of on my mind. So let me put some words to it to see how my thoughts evolve as I'm writing. It's almost a new a process for me of journeying through that stuff. So a lot of the stuff I've been writing like about imposter syndrome, for example, is the stuff that I've been contemplating myself because I'm a big time sufferer of that <laughs> phenomenon. And so for me, writing was as much, it's therapeutic. It's how I learn. It's how I explore. It's how I get my arms around a topic. And occasionally it turns like when I first started writing about that topic, some people were like, oh my gosh, I'm so glad you wrote about this. And the more I get feedback like that, the more I'm like, oh, hey, there's some people who are benefiting from this. And that just fuels me to to want to share more of it because I really do feel like if it's helping other people, it's doing something good as well as just being a vehicle for me to to vomit out a bunch of words. Mm-hmm. So if that, if that counts as a strategy, I maybe, but you'll note that my writing is very sporadic. I don't stick to a schedule. I don't stick to any kind as much as I'd like to adhere to a schedule, I don't. And I tend to write in waves. I'll have a lot of things to say. And then in the last couple of months, I've had horrible COVID writer's block and just like not felt like I had much to say. So mm-hmm. it comes in waves for me. It's not nearly as strategic as I encourage my clients to be with their programs. <laughs> so on the topic of imposter syndrome, as you said, I, I think it's something that, you know, people might look at your career or people who followed you. And if you say, well, I suffer from imposter syndrome, they go, wait, what? So And I I don't talk about it that much, but certainly I suffer from it as well. And I know I did mention it somewhere along the way, and maybe it was in a talk that I did or a QA and a session. And and afterwards, someone sent me an email and said, I'm amazed that you would say you suffer from imposter syndrome. So what have you learned? What are you sharing? What are your thoughts on that? Oh my gosh. It's such a... So... The, I mean, the very definition of imposter syndrome is having trouble internalizing your own successes, despite having evidence to the contrary. So it's like, you can write it all down and there it is. Like I actually did those things, but somehow you have trouble getting it in your own brain. So I, it was actually through the process of therapy and talking to my therapist about some of this stuff. I'm like, why is this so hard? So again, writing was a, an exploratory vehicle for me. And as it turns out, this is a really pervasive problem. Lots of people think it, very few people talk about it, especially people like you and I, who on paper, you could argue that we've had some successful you know, career growth. So you're like, well, how could you feel that way? 
But the reality is no matter how successful you are, somebody else is already always more successful. And the internet especially gives us this like precious little snapshot of everybody's highlight reel. And you can see their carefully curated Instagram filtered feed and people getting promoted left and right on LinkedIn and talking about their book deals and their keynote speeches and their this, that, and the next thing. And it's like, ah, and mm -hmm. all you see in your head is the hot mess of spinning plates that you have going on, hoping against hope that you are going to keep your head above water. So it feels really gnarly. And I think for me, the most kind of transformational experience in learning about this was when I could reframe the pervasive kind of thoughts of I'm not good enough. Somebody's going to find out that this is, you know, that odd that I've been faking it all this time that some, they're going to turn around and be like, wow, this chick really has no idea what she's doing. That to me is all now a, an indicator that I'm in a growth zone that when that stuff starts to show up for me a lot, it means I'm stepping outside my comfort zone somewhere and I'm doing things that are stretching my limits. So I've started to look at that as a good thing. Mm -hmm. um, not to say that I want to sit there and wallow in those feelings. It's actually, I just take it as an indicator of, okay, this discomfort is normal. It's real. This is part of the process of doing something that scares you a little bit. Tell that stuff to shut up and you just kind of keep doing your thing and do your thing. Because what ends up happening, the other thing that was really fascinating to me is learning that we tend to sometimes get those feelings of imposter syndrome, especially when things become second nature. So let's say you get really good at something. You've been in the HR space and the talent space for eons, right? And so that stuff to you feels as natural as breathing. For me, talking about marketing, I'm like, wow, do I have to say the same thing 500 times? Haven't they heard that a million times already? Mm -hmm. But it never fails that for, for the people I'm talking to, I can, the light bulb comes on. They're like, oh God, nobody ever said it that way before, you know? Yeah. So, but it feels to us like it's easy because we have the skill set built. So it's really easy to start feeling that because something is, comes easily to us, that it's not valuable to somebody else. So you start to get that voice of like, well, is anybody going to really think that's important? And why me? And it's not, you know, so I've had imposter syndrome about writing about imposter syndrome as meta as that is, because it's like, well, who am I to talk about this? But, you know, I'm, I'm as much of a sufferer as anybody. So why not me? I guess. And I think it's, it's interesting. It's almost always the case, as you've said several times, when we share those vulnerabilities, people kind of come out of the woodwork. And, mm -hmm. you know, there, maybe there are some people who, you know, tune out or turn off and, and you never know, and they probably weren't one of your true fans anyway, but the people that come forward and say, you're like me, you know, yeah. <laughs> and, and that gives them hope, which in turn, probably at least does for me fuels my, okay, maybe I can do this because 100%. somebody else is looking at me and being inspired by my journey of failures and successes. And when I share that I'm not as confident as they think I am, it actually in some cases builds their respect for me. A hundred percent. And it also fosters trust because if, if people, like none of us are these perfect immaculate collections of successful, beautiful things. If we were, man, the world would look a lot different. So, you know, sharing those vulnerabilities. I mean, I, I don't know if you're a devotee of Brene Brown as well, but like sharing about those vulnerabilities, whether we're in positions of leadership or, 
or not is the tie that binds us as humans in so many ways. It's like, those are the things nobody talks about. It's the behind the scenes stuff. But when we feel seen and we feel that sense of belonging to something that is bigger than us, but still imperfect, it's okay for us to be imperfect. That's an incredibly relieving, reinforcing and validating feeling as humans. And man, I, I don't know, we could all use a little more of that right now. I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, if it's interesting, um, an upcoming guest on the podcast will be Todd Henry, who's got a new oh, book yeah. called The Motivation Code. And so I took the assessment that, that goes along with the book and it came back that my if you had asked me to describe myself, I probably would have hit on these, but I love assessments. And the first top two for me were stepping into a challenge and making an impact. And I'm like, oh, good. I'm glad my podcast is called Impact Makers. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but then I look at the last you know, six plus months of the pandemic, which has been a challenge for everyone, including myself. You know, my, my business completely went to zero March, yeah. mid-March for 2020 and, and beyond. And so I would love to have thought that I would have in March said, okay, this is a challenge. Sign me up. But instead it was... I don't know what to do, you know, yeah. and I think I'm still figuring that out. And it has been a very vulnerable time of how much do I share that I'm struggling? You know, does that cause people to say, well, she's, she's what we thought all along, a fraud? Or do some people say, I'm glad she shared that with me because I'm struggling too. So it's, that's probably imposter syndrome about imposter syndrome. <laughs> Am I, am I a good enough imposter? <laughs> it's, it's that funny how that works, but it, it, it totally is that stuff. And you're just like, are my failures big enough to actually matter? To, so, I mean, it's like, it's so funny how we start to think about that. But the one thing that's been great for me, especially in this weird upside down world that we're in right now is I think sharing some, just the other day, I actually tweeted something about, you know, my job is marketing. And this is what I do for a living. And right now, the last thing I want to do is marketing. It feels so frivolous and meaningless on top of some major things that are going on in the world around us that it feels like, really, I'm going to tell somebody how to like optimize their ad. Shouldn't I care about something bigger than that right now? And the outpouring of other marketers who came and were like, me too. Oh my God, this is the same was a very kind of, it, it was a, you know, ephemeral Twitter moment, but it was very bonding in a sense for people to hear, like, you're not alone in this struggle. We're all feeling a little weird and disoriented. And it actually gave me a little bit of jolt of energy that I was missing. It's like, okay, I'm not alone in this. We're all struggling. It's okay for it to be a little gnarly. I'm just going to keep putting one foot in front of the other and we'll get through this. And sometimes those moments of solidarity are all it really takes to realize that if you're not in the battle alone, maybe there's more strength in numbers than you think. And finding people who are willing to, you know, co-create solutions or like, hey, how can I help you? Or what can I do? Or like those kinds of bonding moments, I think, are what make it all worth sharing those more uncomfortable things. Yeah. Well, for companies or people who work for companies that want to learn how to use their content, uh, they need to hire you to work with you. So <laughs> so I'm going to ask from a personal brand standpoint, because a lot of what I talk to people about in terms of, you know, making an impact at work and in life is really about establishing that influence, whether you call it thought leadership or whatever people want to call it these days. For someone who might come to you and ask advice, you know, 10 years ago, I'm sure you probably would have said, start a blog. You know, today, if someone says, hey, I kind of want to 
you know, become a thought leader sounds weird, but you know what I'm talking about. Right. <laughs> you know, I want to become a thought leader. I want to establish my expertise. I want to build credibility, get authority in my space so that I can either advance my career, become, you know, start my own business, whatever that might be. Mm-hmm. What are two or three things that you recommend or would recommend to a person who sought you out for that? Oh boy. Okay. Boiling it all down to two or three things. <laughs> well, if there's I, 10, go at it. <laughs> no, 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 no. I, we, we could probably do this all day. I think first of all is retain the hunger to be an insatiable learner, because I think being willing to constantly have sources of input is part of what fuels your constant output. I read voraciously. I listen to stuff. I have great kind of like back channel chats with people who are smarter than I am. And that's always fueling my curiosity. So I think that partly is like the the constant fuel source for me to be thinking and writing and doing stuff. Uh, Platform doesn't matter. I like some people are like, you have to be on this channel or that channel. I say, just pick one that feels natural to you. And that feels good. There's still a place in the world for, for blogging and there's still plenty of really great blogs out there. So if that's your jam, do that. Um, if you like video, if you're not a writer and if you'd rather be on video, like do videos, do live streams, do, you know, do a TikTok if you really want to do the thing. <laughs> it's, it's, you got to find something that you are going to kind of naturally take to and feel like you're going to stick with it. Because like I said earlier, consistency is really important and keeping continuing to show up. And then I guess the last thing for me is be willing to experiment a little bit. You know, a lot of people put, you'll, you'll look at like one successful piece of writing and like for every post I have that gets a lot of traction, I probably have six more that never gets the light of day. So it's like, it, you can't judge that stuff based on just like a series of greatest hits. The greatest hits albums came from, you know, lots of people recording albums that had B-sides and, and deep tracks that nobody ever heard. It's the same with content creation. There's going to be a lot of stuff that you, that hits the cutting room floor before it ever gets published. There's going to be stuff you publish that doesn't necessarily work the way you want it to. But the willingness to keep trying and keep putting stuff out there is the most important part of any of this. And having something to say is where you've got to start. So if you've got something to say, find a place to say it and just keep showing up. That is 99% of the battle. And the becoming a thought leader, sort of like I said about follower counts earlier, you don't, being a thought leader isn't the goal, it's the result. So every thought leader, quote unquote, started as a nobody that nobody had heard of, that didn't have an audience. And that stuff comes with your willingness to show up first and put more into the community than you're asking to take out. So make all the deposits up front, share the knowledge, be generous, be effusive with how much you're willing to put in and the results come, but it has to go in that order. I love that you kind of came full circle here. I mentioned to you before we started recording that I printed off one of your LinkedIn posts that, you know, I might ask you about and mm-hmm. and you kind of nailed it right at the end. The last line of that post says, don't confuse influence, prominence, and popularity. They're different. And thought leadership isn't just about how much you can turn up the volume on the button. Yep. I love that kind of approach and what you just shared for people. I, I also love that you shared earlier about you know, don't think that someone else has already said it because people haven't heard it from you. It's so that that's the one that gets people all the time. It's like, well, that you know, there's 87,000 people talking about marketing or talent or engineering, you know, what, what good can I add to it? And it's like, we all have some unique flavor that we bring to something, whether it's our personality or our point of view or some combination of those things that is different. 
And if you've ever worked in any industry, like especially in marketing, I'm not saying anything necessarily different than I'm saying it to, you know, than other people are saying it. It's the way I'm saying it or how I phrase it or some experience I have to reference to it or an analogy that I managed to draw. You know, you ride horses like I do and I have multiple riding instructors and every single one kind of imparts the same concepts a little bit differently. So I learn differently from each instructor. It's the same thing with this. It's like the world doesn't have your point of view. So there's really no harm in, in seeing what you can add that's unique even if the conversation itself is not. I love that. Well, thank you so much for sharing your thought leadership and your wisdom and your your life experience with us today, Amber. Where can people find you, connect with you online and hear your opinions and thoughts? (laughs) (laughs) Gracious opinions and thoughts. Okay, well, I'd be remiss if I didn't start by saying you can come find me on LinkedIn, of course. And just with my first and last name, you can find me there. I'm on Twitter at, at Amber, Amber Cadabra um, is my handle there. And again, forewarning, I'm a little sweary on Twitter sometimes. <laughs> uh, and if you want the more formalized version of me, you can go to my blog at brasstechthinking.com. And that's got most of my articles and writing there. Okay, And I'll be sure to link to all those in the show notes. Well, again, thank you so much. And I will continue to follow your journey, learn from you and enjoy your horse pictures. <laughs> uh, it was my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. It's time for you to get noticed, create change, and grow your influence. Don't waste any time. Subscribe to this podcast and help us get the word out by leaving a review.